You're listening to audio from Trinity West Seattle. For other resources, more information about this sermon series, or to connect with us, visit our website, www.trinityws.com. My name is Grace, and I will be reading from Matthew 15, 21 through 28. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon, And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying. Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her in but he did not answer her in a word, and his disciples came out and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. If you believe that God speaks to us through his word and he's active and present here this morning, would you just say amen? Amen. Let's pray as we receive it. God, we love you. We're so grateful that you've spoken to us. And we come to your word, we come to this gathering today anticipating that you're present with us You're working in each person's life in different ways, and you want us to draw near to you. You want to reveal yourself to us. Would you do that? And would you change us in your presence now as we look at this story of this Gentile woman and someone who is as far as anyone could have imagined someone could be from God, and yet you welcome her. Would you you give us that same heart for people who are far from you. And God, for those of us who are far from you or have forgotten our standing that we have with you today, would you encourage us and draw us near to yourself as well. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. There's this movie some of you guys may have heard of called The Sandlot. I'm guessing most people have seen that movie by this point. Uh, and there's a kid in the movie named Scotty Smalls. He's called Smalls by all of his friends, right? So Smalls is probably about 11, 12 years old in this film. And his mom uh, is recently remarried. And so they've moved to a new town to live with his stepdad there. And Smalls is an awkward kid. He's very unsure of himself. He, first off, is at an uncomfortable age, so it's kind of normal that he would, that he would be awkward. But he also barely knows his stepdad. He can't even decide whether to call him Bill or Dad, and so he's kind of stuttering and going back and forth between these two uh, ways of calling him. And then to top all of it off, he's just moved to a new place. He doesn't have any friends. He doesn't know anybody. Now, if the movie took place today, 
then Smalls would, in his new town, in his new home, he'd just you know, sit in his basement playing Minecraft with a bunch of people online that he's never met in person. But thankfully, that's not the reality of this story. This story took place, I think, maybe in the early 60s or something, and his mom encourages him to get outside, go out there, and meet some kids. And Smalls finds his way to this sandlot, uh, which is really just an open, run-down, dirt field that all the neighborhood kids congregate around to play baseball. And does anybody who's seen the movie remember what happens a little bit after he arrives? Anybody? Yeah, David says, yeah, yeah. a few of you guys, you don't have to shout out, it's fine. Uh, he, he gets, uh, or, or they, they begin to pick teams, the kids begin to pick teams, right? And Smalls is standing there, and of course all the other kids know each other, and here he is just waiting and waiting and waiting. He wants so badly to belong, right? He wants so badly to be wanted. He wants so badly to feel like he has a seat at the table. And the hero of the story, this, this other kid, Benny Rodriguez, after all this time goes by and every other kid is picked, he picks Smalls to be on his team. And man, Smalls just lights up. He's so excited, so glad, so full of joy that he was picked. And did you know that if you're a Christian, you have been picked? You have been picked. The Bible says from before the foundation of the world, you were handpicked by the God of the universe. Just let that sink in for a minute. I know many of you who are Christians, you've heard this many times. Just stop for a second. Think about that. You were handpicked by the God of the universe from before the foundation of the world. And you weren't just picked for some baseball game, right? You weren't even picked merely for a team. You have been picked to be a part of his family, to be a part of the family of faith. What an incredible joy we have as Christians, brothers and sisters, amen? What an incredible joy we have by faith to be fully known by God, to be fully loved by God, to be taken from really the lowest places we have ever chosen to go and to be lifted up, placed at the seat of honor at his table. What a joy. And what we're going to see through this story today is that through faith in Jesus, dogs become heirs. And heirs, I mean H-E-I-R-S. Sorry, I'm having trouble spelling that. Dogs become heirs through faith in Jesus. Now, through the last few weeks as we've been looking at the Gospel of Matthew, we've been talking about what defiles a person. What defiles a person? What, what pollutes someone's soul, right? What, what makes them unclean? And Jesus taught that people get defiled either by playing the religious game or by playing the rebellion game. You can get there through two different paths. And this all centered around this kerfuffle that he had with some religious leaders over the washing of hands versus the washing of the heart. And though it may not seem like it at first when we read this story, it, it it's actually Matthew kind of flashing a neon sign for us, showing us this is actually a continuation of what he was just talking about. This is actually an example of the most unclean person that anyone in his culture could have thought of. 
The last person that anyone would have thought God would pick gets welcomed into the family of faith. It's a great story. Let's begin with verse 21. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. Now this is a really big deal because not only was Jesus leaving the place where he had done the bulk of his ministry up until this point, but he's leaving it for Tyre, it says, and Sidon. Now, what's Tyre and Sidon? Here's a quick map for you. I'm sorry, it's still a little bit small. I said we'd have to pass out binoculars for those of you guys in the back, but you can kind of see here the, the region in green is where the Jews lived, and the region outside of that is where people who weren't Jews lived, and Tyre and Sidon are way over there on the coast, which is modern-day Lebanon. And you see Tyre and Sidon at the time of Jesus, it was the land of the Gentiles. It was, uh, well, Gentiles, by the way, are, are anybody who... Uh, has a different race or ethnicity other than the Jews. So in the ancient world, you got to understand this, ethnicity was inextricably tied to your religion, okay? We don't really think of things this way, but that's how how it worked. Uh, If you were a Hebrew person ethnically, for example, your religious identity was Jewish. That was just how it was. Uh, and, And in many ways, If you were a Gentile, then you were, by default, you were a worshiper of false gods. And this is still somewhat true today uh, in non-Western countries. This is how people see things. In fact, it even defines some of our borders that we have between nations. You think of India and Pakistan, right? Things like that. And so the reason why this is such a big deal that Jesus has... Uh, left the region that he had been in for all of this time and he's going here is because he is deliberately going to a place that doesn't worship the God of the Bible. Okay, What does that mean? It, it means these people in this place, they worship false gods and it means they're defiled, they're filthy according to the way that the Bible would have spoken of them. See, even Gentiles who had faith in Israel's God, which there were some, even they were not allowed to enter into the temple to worship with the Jews because they were considered unclean just as a people group. It kind of rubbed off on them from the people that they were a part of. And so to fully appreciate how incredible this is, that Jesus is going to this place and that he's interacting with this woman in this story, we're going to have to zoom out for a minute. I know we've already been talking about Tyre and Sidon and Gentiles and all that for a second, but we gotta zoom out and we'll come back to the story. We'll zoom back in in a minute, but we've gotta come back to zooming out to the grand narrative of the whole Bible, okay? The story of God. And and this is gonna seem like a lot for me to be going through all this, but trust me, it's really important and necessary for us to understand what's going on here in this story and also how it relates to you and me, how it relates to us today. So let's zoom out if you will hang with me for a few minutes to just look at the story of God and how it relates to what's going on here in this story. So we always talk about the story of God. It's creation, fall, redemption, new creation. And in the story of God, this is a way of summarizing the scripture, we see that God created humankind in his image. And what did he create us to do to rule the world on his behalf under him 
as the senior ruler, as the king. But we know that under the influence of Satan, humankind sought to usurp God's authority, God's rule, and so since then, we have all helplessly fallen from God's intended purpose for us. And in the book of Genesis, we see that fall take repeated plunges deeper and deeper into evil further and further and further until human pride really reaches its climax at the story of the Tower of Babel. Anybody ever heard that story before, the Tower of Babel? And in that story, the people banded together and they worked together as one to build a city that was so great that their name would be known the world over. And this is ultimately just an unveiled attempt to do what all of us do in our hearts, to live on our own terms, to live for our own glory. And that's what they were doing at the Tower of Babel. And so what did God do? He thwarted their plans, he confused their languages, and then he scattered those people all among the nations, it says. And what was the result of that? Inter-ethnic divisions. Inter-ethnic divisions. And we still live with this reality to this day. Now, only a chapter later, so that story, Tower of Babel, takes place in Genesis 11. Only a chapter later, we're introduced to a guy named Abram. And Abram is, the story of Abram is deliberately placed in Genesis 12, right after the Tower of Babel, as, as God's way of saying, the Tower of Babel was humanity's plan for the world, but now here is God's plan for the world. And we're given this early glimpse of redemption, God's plans, God's purposes. God's plan would take place through a man named Abram. Now, his name meant exalted father, which, if we're honest, was a bit ironic, maybe a bit depressing, because at that point in the story, he was an older dude, right? And he was married, but so far, they were unable to have children, until finally God makes him a promise in Genesis 12. It says, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. So God promises Abram that he's going to become Abraham, which means father of nations. And through Abraham's family, this new nation would be born, God says, the nation of Israel. And it would be a nation devoted to God, and therefore, it would be a nation that is blessed, blessed by God. But not blessed simply for its own benefit, simply for its own sake. Yes, that. But blessed in order to bless all the peoples on the earth. That was its purpose. Israel would be God's people and he would be their God. And through them, the world, uh, sorry, through them, he would undo the brokenness of the fall in the world until even one day, God would reverse the divisions, undo the divisions created by the fall of Babel. And so why, why, why is God doing things this way? Why, why did he pick Abraham? Or why did he pick Israel? Well, Genesis 15, God says that he picked Abraham because he had faith. 
because he was maybe first, if you will, in the family of faith, or one of the first. And then in Deuteronomy 7 and 9, God says he picked Israel not because they were so great and wonderful, but because he was keeping his promise to Abraham. And, and beyond that, he had brought them into this land to live, Israel into this land to live because the surrounding nations were so evil, because they were worshiping all of these other gods. And so on their best days, Israel understood this. Israel understood why God had chosen them and what God was up to, and they remembered, they, they were humbled by this reality. They remembered, God didn't pick us because we were so amazing, but because he is faithful. And because the surrounding nations were so evil, he wants us to bring light and goodness and his way into this place. And so on their best days, Israel was committed to the Lord. They were committed to his plan for the world coming true through them. On their best days, they yearned for God's promises to come true. But unfortunately, those best days were very, very few. Very rarely did it appear as though they were going to be blessed, let alone be a blessing to the nations. Now every once in a while as you read the Old Testament, you'll see a Babylonian king or an Ethiopian queen come to faith, but, but Israel never saw the family of faith fully spread worldwide. Why? Why didn't that happen? It was because they failed. Instead of worshiping Yahweh, they worshiped false gods, just like all those evil people in the surrounding nations. Really, they were worshiping demon gods, the Bible says. They lived for themselves rather than living for the good of the world, a problem we're totally unfamiliar with here as Christians today, right? Even the Israelites that didn't worship idols, even the ones who did worship the one true God, they usually held on to their blessing of being picked by God rather than sharing it. Another thing we don't know of as the church today, I'm being facetious, sorry. And along comes David. Man, David, he really seems like he's gonna turn things around for everybody. And, and in many ways he does, right? He mostly led Israel with justice and righteousness, but in the end, David failed too. Nevertheless, God made a promise to him that through his throne, through one of his descendants, the Messiah would come, the Savior would come, this, this new son of David would be the one in whom all the promises that God had made would finally come true. Through him, through this Messiah, Jew and Gentile would be united. Gentile and Gentile would be united. All the people of the earth would finally be blessed. Such good news. And this would be really through God making a new creation. A new creation, which is amazing. And so... Thank you for going on this diversion with me to the story of God because Matthew has all of that running around in the background of the story that we're looking at. And in telling this story, he's showing us that all of those promises are finally coming to pass, that God's family of faith is about to spread worldwide. That 
that after Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension, the gospel will finally go to the nation, to the nations. And in this story, Jesus is basically fast-forwarding. He's grabbing a bit of the future, and he's bringing it into his present. That's what's happening. So that's the context. Ready? Now, now we can actually look at the story. You guys ready? Okay, great. Verse 22. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. Okay, so I want to look at a few things about this woman and about the things that she is saying. The first is just that it says that she's Canaanite. Canaan, if you might remember, is the land that Israel had come and invaded. That was the evil nation that God had told Israel to come in and push out. And so she is one of those people. And in other words, she's a Gentile. She's a person of another ethnic group. Now remember, right off the bat, that makes her unclean. Because in that culture, uh, they would have seen the person who worships another god as unclean. And also in that culture, men didn't associate with women who were not their wives. So this is kind of scandalous that Jesus is even going to have an interaction with her at all. And then on top of that, Jews didn't associate themselves with Gentiles. So it's more scandalous uh, already. The other thing I want to point out about this woman is that she believes in demonic oppression. Now, this isn't that surprising. I mean, most people throughout the world, throughout history, have believed, and, and even today, most people throughout the world have believed that evil spirits exist, uh, that, that seek to make people's lives miserable. That's not a, a new thing. It's not an uncommon thing. Now, we've talked about demonic oppression quite a bit throughout Matthew's gospel, uh, and so I'm not going to go in depth on that today. Uh, I would encourage you, if that's a new subject to you, to go back to some of the texts earlier in Matthew that deal with that and go check out some of those messages on our podcast or on our YouTube channel. Uh, but for now, what I do need to say about this is just a real simple statement that demons are able to harass people no matter the person's life, no matter their background, no matter their faith, they can harass you, bother you, trouble you, but demons are able to oppress people, that's the word that's used here, when they have been given permission to do so. When someone has been hospitable to their power over them. Okay? This usually happens through believing their lies, embracing lies rather than God's truth. This usually happens through giving ourselves over to some sin, especially something habitual, something that has really got a stronghold in our life, or thirdly, through worshiping false gods. So just deliberately, intentionally doing that. And that's likely what has happened with this woman and apparently her poor daughter, who's now suffering severely as a result of it. And so this Canaanite woman, what does she do? She's repeatedly, she's persistently crying out to Jesus to do something about her daughter's suffering. And we're gonna come back to that in just a second. As she comes to him though, another thing I wanna point out is, third thing, she, she addresses Jesus with respect. She comes to him and she calls him Lord. Now, 
when she says Lord, it's not necessarily calling him God, but really it's calling him master. That's, that, that, that's why she's using that term. Now, I realize that this word master has some baggage around it, and it's going to come up in a little bit, and so I want to address it just briefly. I know for, for some of you, this word just has a really ugly background, the word master, especially for those of you with African descent. And so what I want you to know is as I'm using this word today, my, my intention is not to trigger anyone here. In fact, the very opposite. We want you here with us. We, we want you, we need you here. We need your story here at Trinity. So please don't let this push you away. But, but as I use this word today, I'm using it because it's the word that the Bible uses. And, and it's a word that's being used with a very, very, very different context than the way it was abused in our nation's history through chattel slavery. In, in Jesus' day, a master was not assumed to be a bad person at all. In fact, there are plenty of times that people called Jesus master as a way of surrendering themselves to Jesus' lordship, which is a really beautiful thing, right? And so I hope that if this word is difficult for you today, that you would hang with us, you would, you would stick with us, and my prayer is that God can actually redeem this word for you as it relates to Jesus. Fourth thing, last thing I wanna say about this woman and what she says to Jesus. She addresses Jesus as the Messiah. She calls him son of David. Now, this one, this is surprising. I mean, how would a Canaanite woman know anything about a Jewish Messiah or care anything about a Jewish Messiah. Matthew has told us, the answer is, Matthew's told us multiple times um, throughout his gospel that Jesus' fame had spread throughout the land, Matthew says. He said that a couple of times. And, and you might remember when Pastor David spoke a few weeks ago, he preached uh, on healing and what was going on in the region there. And he said there were no hospitals back then, there was no modern medicine, and people would do just about anything to find relief from their suffering. They might even travel great distances, they might even cross ethnic lines. You might say, okay, but surely a Gentile wouldn't do that. But yet, she does. She does, she comes to him for healing. And how does Jesus respond to her? This is where I think things get a little difficult. Verse 23. But he did not answer her a word. He did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, send her away, for she's crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came, and she knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. Why didn't Jesus answer her? You know, there, there are some details that I think we probably all wish were here in this story, but they just aren't. You have to ask a lot of questions. Was Jesus ignoring her? I mean, man, he seems so cold. He seems aloof even, right? Why, why wouldn't he heal? 
Well, he actually tells her why. He says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Jesus is explaining that story of God to her. That's, what, that's what, why we went through all of that together. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, you're early. You're early. I'm supposed to come and save Israel first, and then it's your turn. And we see that happen later. Like I said, after Jesus' death, resurrection and ascension throughout the book of Acts we see the gospel spreading to the Gentiles and God saving the Gentiles all of them getting brought into the family of faith but not yet Jesus says but you know what I think there's another reason why God doesn't heal her instantly right then and there I think there's another reason why he responds in this way I think Jesus wants to draw this woman out He wants to draw her out. Look what he does next. He answered, verse 26, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Very difficult statement from Jesus. Very difficult. This, in fact, I think is maybe the hardest thing to deal with in the whole Gospel of Matthew, for me anyway. I struggled with this when I read this. I was like, did Jesus just call her a dog? I mean, he seemed cold at first. Now he seems harsh, right? I mean, he almost seems racist. Is Jesus racist? The answer is no, of course. Jesus is literally the furthest that anyone could possibly be from being racist. He's more anti-racist than all those books of all the authors that you've read. No matter how against racism you might be or I might be, Jesus is still more against it. How can I say that? Well, in actuality, Jesus goes on to die for the sin of racism, amen? He goes, amen? Okay. Jesus goes on to die for the divisions that separate people. He goes on to die for the salvation both of Jew and and Gentiles so that they might become one. Now, many Christians are familiar with the passage in Ephesians 2, the first half of it that says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Can I get an amen to that? Oh, what a glorious truth. We get saved by the grace of God. We don't deserve it. We come to God with empty hands, in fact, filthy hands, and he, and he just receives us by faith. But you see the second half of Ephesians, the one that's lesser known, the one that's not explored as often, actually explains that that salvation results in the unification of peoples. Check out what it says. For he himself, that's Jesus, is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility that was there. Okay, that's, this is the Apostle Paul. He's kind of hard to understand sometimes. What is he exactly saying? He's saying that Jesus has died to make division cease. 
especially divisions between races. He's saying that when Jesus was killed, he killed the hostility between different ethnic groups. And he reconciled us to God. He reconciled us also to one another. And more than that, here's where this gets incredible. He, He didn't stop there. He went all the way to creating one new humanity, it says. It's incredible. He wouldn't settle for mere peace between people groups. He actually takes it one step further. He made us one. He made us new, Jew and Gentile, coming together under Jesus' lordship, white and black and brown and every color of the rainbow coming under the Lord Jesus Christ. Can I get an amen? Being made new, reconciled to God and to one another. Isn't it glorious? Isn't it glorious? We love that. See, the world continues to live as though Hostility between ethnic groups is normal. Some Christians continue to live as though hostility between ethnic groups is normal, as as though we should expect it. But ever since Jesus died for our sins, including the sin of racism, it shouldn't be normal. It shouldn't be. God is doing something new with humanity. And so I hope that proves to you, friends, Jesus is definitely not racist. So that's not what's going on in this conversation that he's having with this woman. And if that's the case, then we got to keep on going deeper. Okay, we've ruled that out. What is Jesus doing here? Why does he speak to this woman in this way? Really hard. Let's get some help. There's a guy named R.T. France who has helped me a ton throughout this Matthew series and in other cases, and here's what he says. Dogs, the term dogs, it was a current Jewish term of abuse for Gentiles. Ooh, okay. Jesus is expressing the contemptuous Jewish attitude to Gentiles in order to explain why her request does not fit into his mission to Israel. And he's... he's, Got some conjecture here that I think might be right. He says, it may be that Jesus was almost jokingly presenting her with the sort of language she might expect from a Jew in order to see how she would react. What is the main point? Why why am I reading that quote? The point is, we can't tell Jesus' tone from this story. We don't know what his motivations are. But we do know that Jesus knew this woman's heart. That Jesus knew what was going on inside of her. And and by judging by the way that things end up playing out, I think Jesus is actually seeking to expose this woman's heart. To expose the fact that it's full of faith. Right? I think he's testing her faith to prove that her faith is present there. And friend, do you ever go through a trial in life and you're like, God, why are you making me go through this? Why are you allowing this to happen? Why did you make me through all that pain, all that hardship? Keep pursuing you. God, why did you do that? Why did you let that happen to me? 
And the answer is, out of love. He's exposing where your faith truly lies. God's allowing you to get challenged. Is your faith here with me? God's saying, or is it somewhere else? Are you peacefully trusting in me, God says, or are you living in fear? Is your faith somewhere else besides with me? And what I want you to know, friends, if you're a Christian, you belong to God as we've established, you've been handpicked by God from before the foundation of the world, do you actually have any reason to doubt when he tests your faith? He picked you from before the foundation of the world. He loved you that much. Do you have any reason to doubt? Of course, the answer is no. And I want this story to remind your soul of that truth today. Remind your soul of that truth. See how this plays out. Jesus is seeming to test this Canaanite woman's faith. And what happens? She remains persistent over and over again, right? She's this great example of faith to all of us. She's an example for us to be followed. She said in response to Jesus, check this out, this is audacious. She said, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. (laughs) Oh man, you gotta love that, right? What a great response. What, what is she trying to say? Well, let's start first with the dog, okay? Anybody here got a dog? I'm sure most of you guys do in Seattle, right? I have a dog. I have a dog. And I got to be honest, what she just described is the function of our dog, right? Uh, our dog's name is Pip, short for Pippin. There he is. He's got the most pretentious breed name of all time. He's a King Charles Cavalier Spaniel, okay? What in the world? Just keep adding words to the name of the breed. Um, But we love Pip, and and if I'm cooking in the kitchen, which is often, I drop something on the floor, you know, some rice flies out of the wok or whatever the thing is, and I, I go, Pip! And he comes wandering in, and I'm like pointing to him with my foot, like, there it is, you can... You can eat that right there. And he comes and he cleans it up for me. It's great. Uh, in fact, sometimes he licks the floor for a few minutes. I'm like, okay, Pip, like, get out of here, man. I got to walk through the kitchen, bro. Um, in fact, when I'm at other people's houses, sometimes I drop things on the floor and I'm looking around for him to come and he's, it's just like so ingrained in me. I'm like, where did he go? Or when we're eating dinner, right, we spill food and call him over and he eats what we've dropped, and and that's what this Canaanite woman is talking about. She seems to be just as tongue-in-cheek to Jesus as Jesus was to her. She's kind of going, okay, is that that what we're doing here? Is that what we're talking about? She's like, fine. I know that the Jews think I'm nothing more than a dog, but your people belong to the God of the universe, and I'd rather be a dog at the master's table than foraging out there in the streets. It's like, okay, Jesus. Yeah, yeah, but, but she's going, yeah, but even some Gentiles are included in the family of faith, Jesus. They may have had to abandon their culture, 
Remember, their culture was associated with idolatry. Or that men, gentlemen, be thankful that you didn't have to get circumcised in order to become a Christian. <laughs> but Gentiles, she's, she's going, Gentiles can be saved. They can be welcomed into God's people. And so she, she just persistently comes to Jesus in faith. She believes. And I want you to think about that in terms of your prayer life. I mean, she's effectively, she's praying more or less. She's just talking face to face instead of with Jesus in heaven. Think of, or, or with the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. Think about how persistent that she is in prayer. She won't take no for an answer. She's not accepting it. You ever pray and pray and pray and you're just like, nothing. You come to the conclusion, oh, God doesn't hear me. Come to the conclusion, oh, maybe God's answer is just no and it'll always be a no. That's how you think. I'd say think again. Persistent faith is celebrated over and over and over again in scripture. Many times it's celebrated through the example of a woman like this one. You've got Hannah in the Old Testament. Jesus gives the example of the parable of the persistent widow. These are women, these are people who don't give up. And what happens? God eventually says yes. Now, don't hear me wrong here. I'm not telling you that if you keep praying, God's answer will definitely be a yes, and you just got to keep going until he says yes, and you just got to wear him down enough. But, but what I want you to consider is, have you given up too easily? Have you taken that prayer that was so hard to pray for so long, and you're like, ah, just cast it aside, I'm done. I want you to see this as an encouragement for us to keep trusting in God, keep on praying, keep on believing that he is good. Here's, here's where it gets really good. Verse 28, then Jesus answered her, O oh woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. See, this reveals to us, I think, what Jesus was up to this whole time. That he wanted to expose the faith that he knew was already there in her heart. He wanted to actually build up the faith that he already knew was there in her heart. You know, sometimes we don't know where our faith is until we've been persistently praying for weeks or months or years, until we've gone through that trial and we've had to repeatedly go back to God in trust. And so once her faith is undeniable, he grants her request. He grants it. Her poor daughter who's been suffering for who knows how long, her daughter is healed. And you might think as as it says it here, that word healed might feel a little bit strange because wasn't this girl oppressed by a demon? But this word healed, it literally means delivered. It literally means cleansed. Why use that language? It's because demonic spirits are not fit for the presence of God. They're considered filthy. They're considered defiled, which meant this woman and her daughter were as low as someone could get. 
They were as far as someone could possibly get from God. What does that mean for us? It means that even filthy, defiled, unclean Gentiles are included in the family of faith through the Messiah. Amen? Which is good news for us because apart from him, all of us are filthy, defiled, and unclean, and most of us who aren't Jews anyway, are also Gentiles. Most of us, apart from God, we fit this exact description. We are like dogs, if you will, at the master's table when we come to God for the first time. For the Christians in the room, I want you to think back to that time when, when, when you were so far from God, felt like there was just no way you could be welcomed into his family, living a life far from him, far from his ways. And I also want to mention that for those of you who are there today. Some of you today are far from God. And I'm so glad that you're here and you're hearing this message because you came here looking for some table scraps maybe, just looking for a glimpse of the God who made you, the God who loves you, and the God who sent his son to save you. You just want just... Just a little bit. You might think, oh, could I be accepted by God? Could I be accepted by the family of faith? If, if the church really knew what I had done, could they possibly accept me? Yes. You might be thinking, if, if the family of faith, if God's people knew what had been done to me, would they accept me? Yes. And church, you can amen me a few times here. It'd be really useful. <laughs> you might be thinking, if God knew what I had done, would he ever accept me? Yes. If God knew what had been done to me, would he ever accept me? The answer is yes. And he does know. Look at how much hope there is in this story. You can be in the grip of the enemy, but he can't even hold on to you if you call out to God for freedom. You're never, ever too far gone. You are never without hope in the Messiah. You may have been excluded by every other person in your whole life. You know, back, beginning back at recess when the kids were picking teams like on the sandlot, all the way down into being excluded by your biological family or rejected by one relationship after another and you might get this false impression that you're just a dog. Nothing more. That, that coming to God, you're just, you're just a dog at the master's table. But you know what, through faith in Jesus, you don't just eat crumbs that fall on the floor. You get lifted up, you get a seat at the table. And this isn't just any seat. Like we don't, we, God doesn't just lift us up from this status up into becoming guests at his table. He actually makes us heirs. The privileged place that Jesus has as the Son of God, it's extended to you, it's extended to me. Through faith in Jesus, dogs become heirs. And so today, don't cower at the master's table with your tail between your legs. In fact, 
you're not a dog, okay? <laughs> so you don't have a tail and don't put it between your legs. Don't be hoping that maybe you can get some crumbs. Come in faith, knowing that God gave his own son so that you could be a son. Knowing that he will pick you or he has picked you and seated, him, seated you with him. What would change in your relationship with God if you realized how much he loves you? It's the first question we're gonna ask with community groups this week and then I wanna encourage you to spend some time praying together and speaking to your father. The God of the universe is our father who wants us to come to him in faith. Maybe there's some areas where your faith is weak and you need to bring that to him with your community this week. I'm gonna pray and then we'll respond to God together. Father, we thank you so much that though we do not deserve it, you grant us mercy and grace and favor beyond what we could ever imagine. Thank you, God. Thank you. We pray that that truth would seep into every crack and crevice of our hearts that we might know who we are and know that we are loved by you. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to audio from Trinity West Seattle. For more information about our services or to connect with us, visit our website, www.trinityws.com. Thanks for listening.